we continue now with the prologue of Revelation. And here in verse 7, John is alluding to, remember there are allusions, alluding to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees four terrible beasts rising in succession out of the waters. Each of these beasts representing a kingdom that would rule on the earth. He sees, Daniel that is, sees a winged lion representing Babylon. A devouring bear representing Medo-Persia, which are the Persians. A winged leopard leopard, representing Macedonia. And finally, a beast with iron teeth representing Rome. And then, Daniel saw the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne with a river of fire before him. The scene was given to Daniel in order to emphasize the sovereignty of God over all of the mighty kingdoms of the earth. And that his judgment over their wickedness was imminent. That God is sovereign over all the nations, even the most powerful of nations. And that in their wickedness, they would ultimately and eminently be judged. And this vision given to Daniel was meant to communicate that the power that nations have is both given to them by God and limited by God. The power that nations have is both given by God and limited by God. But Daniel's vision concludes not in the way that we might assume. We might assume that the conclusion of Daniel's vision is that God comes and destroys the sinful nations judging them. Instead, in Daniel's vision, he is given a vision of one, designated as one like the Son of Man. And listen to the language, coming with clouds of heaven to be presented before the Ancient of Days. Daniel says of him who is coming with clouds, you hear the allusion there, in Daniel seven fourteen, to him, the one coming with clouds, to him was given dominion and authority and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion, Daniel says, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And now here in Revelation 1, 7, In this introduction, this prologue of the apocalypse, the Apostle John picks up on and explicitly references Daniel's vision. Uh, But here's what John also does. John identifies who the one, the Son of Man is. He identifies him as the Lord Jesus Christ. He identifies this one coming as the Son of Man as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who loved us and released us from our sins by his blood, the one who made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to whom belongs all glory and dominion forever. And then Daniel says, and he does this for emphasis in that it, it correlates with an Old Testament prophecy. He uh, capitalizes, if you will, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Daniel says of this man, uh, this son of man, that he is the Lord Jesus Christ and that he, behold, is coming with the clouds. 
I want you, I would like you for a moment to think. Think of how encouraging this would have been for the saints of God living under the, the tyranny of Domitian. They would have been familiar with the prophecy of Daniel and they would have known that Daniel saw the Son of Man coming on clouds of glory. It would have been a familiar verse to them. Daniel wrote to a people who were exiles living in Babylonian captivity. They had been separated from the temple of God. They were forced to live under an oppressive ungodly magistrate but under that kind of turmoil they were encouraged that the kingdom of Babylon would not last behold there is one the king of glory who will come on the clouds of heaven and to him belongs glory and dominion forever I would like you for a moment to take time this afternoon to to read Psalm 24. There in Psalm 24, the psalmist asks a rhetorical question in the midst of his praise. And he says this in verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then he asked this, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty is the answer. The Lord mighty in battle is the answer. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the psalmist, in the midst of his praise, asks again, you want to know who the king of glory is? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The seven churches of Asia Minor and the churches of all ages, those who live under ungodly magistrates, those who live under persecution, those throughout all time who are experiencing tribulation, they all, we, are all given this blessed hope and this blessed encouragement. Lift up your heads. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. The King of glory. Who is the King of glory? He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. The same hope of salvation that Daniel gave to the people of God living under the temporary rule of Babylon is the same hope that was offered to those believers who were living under the temporary Roman rule of the Roman Empire. And it is the same hope of salvation that is offered to you and I here today. Behold, He is coming with the clouds of heaven. This morning, with God's help, we shall consider three points concerning Christ who is coming. Number one, Christ on clouds of glory. Uh, Verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. John, John is doing what every faithful witness of Christ does. John is drawing all of our attention to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the doxology of of Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 through 6, John is glorifying the present and past work of Christ for our salvation. He loves us and he has freed us from our sins by his blood. And now John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
continues to place a spotlight on Christ as he points to the future work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the return of Christ. Charles Spurgeon said concerning the return of Christ, Brethren, at his church, no truth ought to be more frequently proclaimed next to the coming of the Lord than the second coming of the Lord. Dear ones, the first advent of Christ is just as important as the second advent of Christ. They are intricately and inseparably connected. Christ has come, and Christ has promised that He will come again. And when He does, He will come on clouds from heaven. We have already considered the connection that John is making to Daniel's vision, but Daniel's vision is not the only place where we find this reference of clouds. Psalm 104 and verse 3. Psalm 104 and verse 3 tells us that God makes the clouds His chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Uh, they, they are the same clouds, if you will, that covered Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 uh, when God came upon the mountain to give His law. And the same clouds that later in 1 Kings chapter 8 would fill Solomon's temple with glory. The coming on or coming with clouds may have potentially a literal fulfillment. Meaning, Christ may literally appear coming on clouds. Literally. But we must remember this. The letter of Revelation is a symbolic one. It is filled with symbolism. So then we must not overlook the symbolism found with clouds. In the scriptures, what do clouds symbolize? What are they most often associated with? In the scriptures... Clouds are most often symbolizing or associated with two things, majesty and judgment. In the scriptures, clouds are most often associated with majesty, that is glory, and judgment. Psalm 18 and Psalm 97 both symbolically speak of clouds displaying the majesty or glory, of God, as well as the judgment of God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a cloud that overshadowed them. There was this, this glory that over, overshadowed them. And in His ascension, when Christ was taken up from the earth, a cloud received Him, and out of their sight, we are told that Christ enters into glory. Clouds there representing a type of glory. When Christ returns on clouds, He will not return as a suffering servant. But He shall come in, as He says, all of the glory that the Father has given Him. Christ shall return in royal majesty. To do what though? Well, to judge the world in righteousness. To, to save those who are His and at the same time, judge those who are not. There is no ambiguity in the Scriptures. Christ is the one who died, the one who was raised, the one who ascended into heaven, and the one who will return in divine glory and power. In Titus 2.13, Paul refers to this event as this, our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is, that is our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of the great God, our great God, Jesus Christ. Just as believers look to the past for salvation at what Christ has done, so we also look to the future, the future horizon, to see the final consummation of all of our hopes. 
We stand on the past work of Christ. We are upheld by His present intercession. And we look ahead to His glorious return when our inheritance in glory will appear. John announces, Behold, He is coming. Brothers and sisters, when you hear that, Behold, He is coming. What emotions do those words evoke within you? Anything at all. When you hear the words from our Christ through the inspiration of the Spirit given to John, And you hear John announce, Behold, He is coming. What thoughts run through your mind? For the believer, this announcement is better than any announcement that we could ever receive. Better than any announcement of a new birth. Better than the announcement of a wedding. Better than the announcement of a new job, a raise, a disease that is healed. It's the greatest announcement that we, the people of God, could ever receive. And it begins with one word. Behold. Uh, There are many announcements in the scriptures that begin with the word behold. Isaiah 7.14 Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. At the announcement of his resurrection, the disciples were told by the angels in Matthew 29, Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And now John writes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. The return of Christ in glory is not only one of the great events of redemptive history. It is the ultimate and consummate saving act of our Lord and King Jesus Christ. And all people, all people will see it. His arrival will be the end of sin in this world. His arrival will be the end of the world of unbelief. His arrival will be the end of this world as we know it. And the announcement is a a call to preparation. Behold, He is coming. It's the end of one era and the beginning of an eternal one. The the age, the eternal age of glory and light in the love of God forever. Dear saints, this will be a glorious, the most glorious event. And it should it should be something at this announcement that should motivate us to live with two things, uh, joy and anticipation every day of our lives. This excitement at this announcement should produce preparation. Examine your lives now. Think about your life today. What are you today making preparations for? Some of us went yesterday to the grocery store to make preparations for today. What are you making preparations for? A new child? A new home? A new car? Maybe a new job? Uh, Maybe a new education? I'd like you for a moment to consider the amount of time and focus and energy, money, connections, bridges that you must build in order for those things that you are making preparations for to come to reality. 
Think of the time spent, the money spent, the connections made. Again, the bridges and connections that are being built and made in order for your dreams, if you will, to be made a reality. Is there, I ask you, a greater preparation and and a greater anticipation for those things uh, than for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. My family and I were on a mini vacation this past week. And there was a time when we made preparations to see the sun set on the Pacific Ocean. For many of the locals, it's a sight that they see time and time again. It's not something that they were anticipating, but I live in Bakersfield. And so the anticipation was great. But the anticipation was also followed by preparation. It was an event for us. For me and my wife and our three children to be able to sit on the shores of the the ocean and to watch one of God's beautiful creations before our very eyes sink into the sea, if you will. We readied our camera. We readied our children, made sure the babies were all fed, that, that emotions were all in, in check. We had even prepared our hearts for that moment. We sat on boogie boards. And while most went about their lives... The sunset was here. We were sitting here looking this way. Uh, There were others who paid it no mind and went the other direction. There were others who were doing other things other than looking in this direction to see the sun. They went about their lives not caring to see the final rays from the sun shine upon the people of the land before it disappears. They did not care to see. But there will be a day when the Son of God will appear and every eye will see. When every mouth will confess. When every knee shall bow. And imagine all nations bowing before the king of glory we must have two two things anticipation are you longing for that day and preparation are you ready for that day is your daily passion to know christ better to be conformed to christ to be christ-like are you prayerful Are you a Berean? Are you watchful? Are you growing in faith, hope, and love? Or are there days that pass when you don't even think about the return of Christ? Could you be likened to those who are simply going in the other direction and not paying any mind in anticipation to the coming of Christ? Or are you anticipating? Are you Prepared to see the Son, the Son of God, arrive with the clouds of heaven. Is there a day that goes by that you don't even think about Him returning? If so, your mind is far too consumed with this world. If there was one day that passes, this is for all of us. Uh, This came to uh, convict my own soul as I was preparing this sermon. There, there are times when I go a whole day without even thinking, Christ, I am longing for your return. Behold, John says, he is coming with the clouds. Are you looking forward to the return of Christ? For those who are looking forward to the return of Christ, it will be evident in our lives. It will show in how, how much we, we cling to this world or are freely able to let it go. It shows in how much we are treasuring and and building up treasures for us here on earth rather than 
laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We store up treasures in heaven now by serving the the kingdom of Christ now, by investing in the ministry of the saints now, by uh, evangelizing to unbelievers now, by, by being faithful in the church and in evangelism now. This is the kind of lifestyle that, that shows that you are looking forward with anticipation and preparation for the return of Christ. And it's not something that we just nod our heads to. It's, it's something that we give the whole of our lives to. It was the purpose of Paul's life. Paul said that there's a, a straining and, and I can, re- I can visually see my dad preaching this sermon in the prisons. He would talk about this straining, this pressing forward, straining toward heavenly things that Paul had. Paul said that he presses onward toward the goal. What was his goal? What, what was he making, what was he anticipating and making preparations for? We made these long lists. A house, a car, a child, a marriage. The prize, he says, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That was the striving. That was the straining forward and pressing forward. That was the prize of Paul's life. What is yours? What is ours? What are we waiting for? Are we awaiting our Savior? Brothers and sisters, are we waiting for that moment when our lowly bodies will be transformed into glorified ones? Do we live lives of godly service, biblical devotion, prayer, and gospel witness? All of these point to the fact that heaven is our home and not this earth. I ask you, in closing this point, what about your lives right now suggests that you are waiting to behold the one who is coming with the clouds? Brothers and sisters, I urge you, not only must we be anticipating His return, but let's also prepare for His return. Secondly, every, this is, uh, every eye will see Him. Every eye will see Him. Verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. Every eye will see Him. As John speaks of Christ's coming, he specifies that His return will be visible to all. The visibility to all peoples on the entire earth is contrary to the belief that there will be a secret coming of Christ. Wherein, the church will be raptured away while the world is left wondering, what happened? Where has everyone gone? Nothing, or notice that John makes no mention of two comings of Christ. John does not specify that there will be a secret coming of the Lord, And then a worldwide visible return of the Lord. In fact, the scriptures consistently speak of the coming of Christ to save his people and to judge his enemies as one single event. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6 through 8 that Christ comes both to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. When the Lord is revealed from heaven. Do you see that there is both salvation and judgment in the one blessed return of Christ? When Christ returns, he will do so with the intention to save those who are his, you and I, and to judge those who are not, listen to this, even those who pierced him, along with those who rejected him. But it will not be a secret event. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 17, is the key text where the doctrine of the rapture has been developed. The doctrine of the rapture. Now, you in the church may say, well, does this church believe in the rapture? Yes. It is when Christ will take all of his people, when Christ will return and take all his people into glory and judge those who are not in Christ. It will be the end of all things, though. It will be the end of all things. The return of Christ is is presented, listen to this, as anything but secretive. Listen to the language in uh, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians tells us that Christ will return with a cry of command. The voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. I think you could agree with me. There is nothing in that passage that sounds secretive. Nothing there that sounds as though this will be some kind of uh, job done in the middle of the night. Paul, through the inspiration of the, ch- of, of the church, of the Spirit, tells the church, when Christ is revealed, there will be so great an announcement that, that every eye all over the world will see Him as He arrives on clouds of glory. Get that into your mind. Christ will not come in secret. In the second advent of Christ, there will be no need to hide him as in his first advent. Uh, He will not need to flee to Egypt. Uh, He will not need to hide his identity from anyone any longer. He will be fully revealed. And when he is, I cannot stop saying this, it will be a worldwide event. A worldwide event. If we could imagine for a moment a royal announcement... There was a time when when kings would enter, that there would be an announcement. And here's how the announcement would go. There would be a call to acknowledge and pay homage to the king who enters. Behold, king so-and-so enters. The king would not yet come in. There's an announcement for everyone to pause whatever you're doing, to stop and take notice, to pay homage To the king who enters. And before the king enters, there would be great trumpets of pomp and circumstance. And they would blow their horns in honor. Because the ruler of all people is entering. And then the king would enter. So shall it be with Christ. Scriptures say, the angel of God will call out to all the earth. What kind of voice will that be? What kind of power and echo will shout throughout the land that will cause all the tribes, the scriptures say, of all the earth, no one will be able to sleep through this. No one will say, he came, I missed it. No one will be able to walk past or pay it no mind. No one will be able to ignore. Behold, he is coming. Every ear will hear. And then the scriptures say, and the trumpets shall echo throughout the entire world. Announcing the presence of the one who is faithful and true. I was speaking to one of the young ladies uh, this morning, uh, one of Javier's children, who, who we have grown, we grew up in the same neighborhood. And I said to her, nothing that you see there now was there when I was a kid. It was all just land. And I said to her, I didn't say this to her, but I say to you, I can remember walking to school in the mornings. Those certain mornings when I had to be early, my sister might remember this. And from our house, which was down the street from the school, we could hear the trumpets singing, uh, playing revale as they raised the flag in their early morning ritual. 
those trumpet sounds would ring through our four streets, would ring through our four streets as I was walking to school. You could hear the sounds of those trumpets playing revale, raising the flag. There will come a time when the trumpet of heaven will echo through every street, every village, every metropolitan, every island, to every nation, to every tribe, to every tongue. The sound of the trumpet will echo throughout the world. Behold, he is coming. This is not a fairy tale. This will be what it is. John writes, Christ is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. This agrees with a picture throughout scripture of a cataclysmic and glorious event that decisively ends history as we know it. We are looking forward to that day by faith when every eye believing and unbelieving, will see the King of glory descend to save and to judge. The Lord has said concerning His return in Matthew 24, they will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. He says, for as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. You see, lightning And wow, it spreads across the sky. Christ says it will go from as far as the east is from the west. You will see the coming of the Son of Man. It will not be a mystery. There will not be those who are left behind, uh, left to figure out what to do next. But rather when Christ returns, it will be a divine display of sky-splitting Glory. An important note is this. When Christ returns, there will be no further opportunity for salvation. Because His coming involves immediate resurrection and final judgment for all people living and the dead. Those who are... uh, Left behind, uh, there will be none. Uh, There will not be those who are left behind after some secret rapture who will then have an opportunity to turn and be saved now that they have seen that all the things that we've been saying all this time happens to be true. Not so. Those who have rejected, who are rejecting, and those who will reject Christ will be forced to see just how false they were in their estimation of Him and His worthiness to be worshipped. There will be no more opportunity. You can't as as Christ appears. Go, okay, forgive me. I believe in you. Not going to happen. It'll be too late. They will see how great their sin is. Because they will be judged for their sin. They will see how they rejected the one in whom and whom alone is found salvation. And they will see his power and his glory. And they will mourn over it. Revelation says they will mourn over it. We just sang a moment ago. It might have been been weird for some of us as we were singing that part. Mourning, mourning, uh, weeping, weeping. That's not for you. That's for them. They will mourn and they will weep the rejection of Christ. Philip Hughes says, there will be no escaping or hiding from the resplendent majesty of his coming. Every knee will bow in submission to him and every tongue will confess and acknowledge his lordship. John says here with emphasis, every eye will see him. But then he places a specific target on a specific group of people, which leads us to our third point. Those who pierced him. Every eye will see him. And he says, even those who pierced him. And then he goes further. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. 
And then he goes further. So it is to be. Amen. In addition to the glory, majesty, and dominion with which Christ possesses and shall display for every eye to see, Christ shall also be revealed as one who was pierced. And this is referring to the crucifixion of Christ. Now, let's make this connection and hopefully you'll be able to see the biblical theology within it. We must not forget that there was one of the disciples who when Christ was captured and crucified, there was one who did not run and hide. There was one who stood at the foot of the cross alongside Mary, the mother of Jesus, and watched Christ breathe his last. And that disciple is the author of this letter of Revelation. It was John. So when John says they will see here him whom they pierced, John saw him. And he saw those who pierced him. John could identify who were the Roman soldiers that were standing guard at the cross. John could identify who was the Roman soldier that pierced him in his side. John could identify because he was there, those who brought Christ down, those who did not break his bones. John was there. It was to John that Christ said about his mother Mary, Behold, John, your mother. And to Mary, behold, woman, your son. After the resurrection of Christ, the return of Christ, and the ascension of Christ, John is able to see something about what's taking place. He's able to see a fulfillment of prophecy. And he makes note of it in his gospel. But here's the prophecy that he sees. He sees Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 12.10. Here's what he says in Zechariah. Here's what Zechariah sees, that John sees, is fulfilled when Christ is pierced. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an oldly child and weep bitterly over him. John, after all of these acts of God, by the Holy Spirit, is given sight to see the fulfillment, the connection, and then fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. And he begins to elaborate on it. Now, there are a few other interpretations of this. I'd like to briefly give you what they are and then get to the what I believe is the right one. One is this view of what's called preterism. Preterism. Preterism is simply fulfillment. Now, in this view, they believe Revelation was written before the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That is when the temple is destroyed. Jerusalem falls. Uh, they are now in uh, complete Roman rule. They believe that this here is speaking of that there. And that the prophetic visions really in this letter are all pointing only to the fall of Jerusalem and no more. The preterist believes that Revelation 1-7 does not refer to a literal coming of Christ, but rather to God's judgment in the form of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. They believe verse 7 is referring to Jerusalem's destruction. And also, judgment, therefore, upon that generation... Which is why we highlight the words, those who pierced him. The preterist believes, well, those who pierced him literally means those who pierced him of that generation. They believe this coming with clouds refers only to the coming of Christ in judgment upon Israel, which took place in order to establish the church as the new kingdom. So they're seeing all of these things as being fulfilled. They also believe those who pierced him, again, only refers to that Jewish nation who will wail, cry on account of him. And the wailing comes when they recognize they made a mistake and they crucified their Messiah. Now, 
we reject this view. For a number of reasons, but here are a few that we've already discussed. We have already established a pretty solid case for this letter, letter being written later than 70 AD or AD 70 because of the persecution that is foretold within it had not yet occurred. Those who are seeing this as seeing this as something that has already been fulfilled, we're seeing this as something that is yet to come and that will continue. The churches, the seven churches addressed in the beginning of this letter, not all of the churches existed during A.D. 70. So it couldn't be fulfilled. They were churches that would later exist in A.D. 95. Also, the witness of the early church affirmed that this letter was written at a later date rather than an earlier one. Another reason to reject this preterist view is that we see Christ coming with the clouds as being, or they see Christ coming with the clouds as being a local judgment. That when Christ comes to judge, he's only judging that particular Jewish nation. But that doesn't coincide with all the tribes of the earth that John says that will see him and also mourn. If it was only the Jews who uh, handed over Christ and who pierced him, uh, then it downplays the fact that our sin is also the reason why Christ was pierced. He was bruised for our transgressions. This means that everyone, you and I, we are guilty for piercing Christ. The prophets Daniel and Zechariah see Christ coming as a judgment on the entire world. It's a worldwide event. It will be one that touches, touches again all the tribes of the earth, not just the tribes of the land. And all the tribes of the earth will wail over him. Now, that's one view. Another approach is a very interesting one, and it sees it as, as having... Uh, a gospel telos, uh, a gospel ending. They view this passage as being one that is looking forward to many people being saved. Now, to that we would say, well, praise God, amen, we, we want to see that. But they see it only as that. It espouses that John sees the gospel being preached, resulting in men and women mourning over their sin, seeing that it was their sin that caused Christ to be pierced, which produces repentance and faith in Christ. Now, if we're connecting Zechariah, don't lose, don't, don't lose me. If we're connecting Zechariah, that is what Zechariah intends to communicate in his passage. Zechariah is undeniably looking forward to salvation that will be coming through Christ. John tells us in his gospel that this prophecy, though, it's already been fulfilled. Which one? That Zachariah's prophecy has already been fulfilled. Not John's. Those who are seeing this as a gospel tell us are saying, John is seeing this as not yet being fulfilled. John's saying, no, this has already been fulfilled. I'm talking about something else because this was fulfilled in Zachariah. This from Zechariah has already been fulfilled in Christ. Stay with me and I'll explain what I mean. Who was there at the foot of the cross and who saw, and as I said before, could identify all of the happenings at the cross? John. John saw a particular Roman soldier in Mark chapter 15. And in Mark 15, John saw how this soldier saw when Christ breathed his last. In Matthew 27, it was not only this guard, but it was other guards who stood near Jesus and who pierced him. Matthew and Mark both record this that John would have known of because John was there and then John could read their account and verify that it was true that one of the Roman soldiers and then eventually other Roman soldiers said this. Surely this man was the son of God. 
these Roman soldiers did what to Christ? Pierced him. Resulting in John seeing that as Zachariah's prophecy fulfilled. He says this in John 19.36. These things came to pass to fulfill. They shall look on him whom they pierced. John is seeing that this these acts are pointing to Zechariah's prophecy. And that in these acts, Zechariah's prophecy is fulfilled. Because according to church tradition, these men looked upon him, declared, confessed he's the son of God, repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ and apparently became known among the churches. Here are these men that pierced him who are now confessing Christ. And there's more to Zechariah's prophecy, which says this, On that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for the sin, for sin and for defilement. To these soldiers and to the Gentiles, a fountain was opened. What took place when Christ was pierced? What sprung forth from his body? But a mixture of blood and water. It was to symbolize grace being poured out by his blood. And water is always meant to represent the Holy Spirit. Upon all the nations. And it would begin there and spread at Pentecost. There is a fountain we sing filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. We sing the sinner plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. That fountain that Zachariah spoke of, it's available to you today. It's, it's something that John saw as being fulfilled, yes, but now available to all. All who turn to Christ, be cleansed of your sin, have your guilt removed, stand by faith in the righteousness of Christ that is offered to you today. So then what is John doing here in Revelation? He's not looking backward. He's looking with this verse forward and he's expanding upon it. He's taking a, a, a prophecy from Old Testament Seeing that it's present, but then pointing to its future fulfillment, which is the ultimate fulfillment. He's looking to, forward to the day when the whole world will be visited by the coming of Christ. John sees the prophecy of Zechariah as being expanded to all the tribes. And there will be some. The church who will rejoice at the coming and the arrival of our Savior. But there will be others who will mourn and, and pray that the mountains fall on top of them when Christ is revealed. There will be some who are prepared and who have waited in faith for their Savior to arrive. And there will be others who will be unprepared and they will be unforgiven upon the coming of Christ with the clouds. Richard Phillips says, this scene is Christ's judgment on unbelieving humanity, which experiences sorrow without repentance and mourning over the realization that there is no longer an opportunity to believe and to be saved. James Ramsey says, Christ rejected and offered salvation neglected, a day of grace wasted. This is the thing that will give the lost sinner his keenest anguish and wring from him at the last a bitter wail that devils never uttered. Imagine all the times when the gospel was presented and rejected. All the times when the gospel was presented and rejected. Presented and rejected. And there will be a time when it will again be, be too late. There will be no more gospel presentations. And there will be no more gospel rejections. It will be too late to present the gospel. 
and too late to accept or reject the gospel. There will not be a seven year period, as I said before, when you are left behind and you can finally get it right. John sees a day of great rejoicing, but also great mourning. It was the sin of fallen man that brought about the death of Christ. It was our sin that pierced him to a tree. Christ has set forth his love for fallen man by nailing our debt to the cross. And for those who have rejected the priestly offering of Christ, they shall mourn for their failure to see the preciousness of his blood. In that day, too late to repent, too late for faith, too late for the gospel to be preached. And what an appropriate response from John in which he says, so it is to be, which means even so, or let it be. Amen. It is fitting that Christ should come in judgment. Those who are rejecting Christ, those who are rejecting the King of glory, should they be given a chance now that they see him to repent? John is saying, no, you should not be given a chance. You've had all of this time. It reminds me of that uh, that parable when Christ tells of Lazarus and the rich man. When the rich man is finally in hell, what does he want? He's he's giving orders from hell. Send Lazarus to go and tell my brothers. Imagine from hell giving orders. Send Lazarus to go and warn my brothers not to come to this place. And what was the response of Abraham? Abraham says, well, they have the law and the prophets. If they do not hear or believe these, they will not believe if someone comes back from the dead. They will be some that even if Christ appeared would say, I still don't believe it. Then let it be then let the judgment that is coming upon those, let it be. So it is to be. We feel bad for them, don't we? Uh, we feel uh, anguish toward them because we love some of these who are rejecting Christ and rejecting Christ and rejecting Christ. We want more than anything for them to see that He is worthy of praise and glory and to give their lives ultimately to Him. Keep praying for that in the meantime. Don't give up on that in the meantime. But when Christ appears, do not wail over them. Rejoice over Him. You anticipated. You were prepared. To God be the glory for that. When Christ returns, it will be a day of great joy. And let me say again, it is coming that Christ should, it is fitting that Christ should return in judgment. It's fitting. Christ first came with mercy and with grace. And there will be a time when that is no more. He will rescue those who have received mercy and grace and judge those who have rejected. And for those who claim uh, that Christ only loves and that Christ does not judge, that, that those who attempt to paint Christ as having no gavel in his hand. Take them to Revelation. Show them the first few verses. Here, when Christ will return. And ask them, would you like to be a part of those whom he saves or those whom he judges? Because know this, behold, he is coming. Donald Barnhouse says, at his first coming, Christ dealt with sin. At his second coming, he will deal with sinners. We must live in either verses 5 through 6, freed by his blood, or verse 7, under his coming judgment. If you will not let him deal with you in love, he must come to you as your judge. If you won't receive his love, then you will receive his judgment. This is why we must not wait 
for the day when the angel will announce his arrival. We must not wait for the day when the trumpets will sound. For in that day it will be too late. But it's not too late today. Today, Hebrews 3.15 says, If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As when they provoked me, God says, there is still a promise that remains. And you have heard the good news of Christ. But I urge you not only to hear, but to hear and believe. Place your faith in Christ alone. Through Christ, Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, you will be able to enter into his rest. Christ, our high priest, has passed through the heavens. He's gone before us. He shall return Hold fast your confession of faith, for behold, He is coming. Let us pray.